Can I ask you a question? Are you taking the time to invest in the lives of people around you? Are you taking time to invest in the lives of the people around you? I'm at a point in my life where I'm realizing that it is the people in whose lives you invest in who will in turn invest their lives in you. Mother's Day is bittersweet in some ways for some of us. Mother's Day for me as a pastor, let me tell you the perspective that I have. Okay? I'm kind of at this stage right now. I'm 40 years old and I pastor a church of lots of 20-somethings. So I get the perspective of both the children and the parents. And here's what I hear from a lot of the parents. A lot of the parents say, you know, I don't have a very good relationship with my children. Trying to establish a relationship with them once again. Problem is, they don't live near you. And when I hear their story, here's what I eventually find out. They didn't make time for their children and now their children don't make time for them. Are you investing in the lives of the people around you? It's the people that you invest in. It's the people that you give your life for. The time to build a lifelong relationship if you're a parent today are going to be parents. The time to build a relationship with your children is not when they're grown, married, and have their own children. The time to develop a relationship with them is now. If you are a stranger to your family, don't be surprised when you eventually find yourself estranged from them. Are you investing in the lives of those around you? I do everything fast. I drive fast. I walk fast, some people say. I do everything fast. Here's a, a rule of life, though, uh, that, that I'm realizing. If you want to go fast, go alone. African proverb, actually. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Success in life isn't measured by how far or how fast you go. Success in life is measured by how many people are with you as you're going. So I ask you again, are you invested in the lives of people around you? If you live a self-centered life where all you care about is yourself, you'll realize that if you reach a point in your life where you need people the most, they won't be there. But if you'll invest your life in people around you now, you'll realize that you're building yourself a relational net, if you will, that when you fall, they're there to catch you. When you can't go any longer, they will carry you. Are you investing in the lives of people around you? I don't know. Does this resonate with anybody this morning? Some of you guys are essentially a product, a byproduct, if you will, of the fact that nobody is invested in you. And you're sitting here this morning. You don't even know how to build relationships because you're going, what does that even look like? You're talking about investing in people. What does it even look like? 
And some of you, of course, resonate very well with this because you were fortunate enough to have some people in your life who invested their time, energy, and resources in you. And you are where you are today, not because of yourself, but because of others around you. And you know that if you were to fall, they will be there to catch you. If you were to say, I can't go any longer, they will be there to carry you. As we study the book of Acts and we come to sort of the latter end, this is what I see Paul. This is, this is the life that I see Paul. You know, some of us have this image of Paul being this, you know, go-getter, which I think he was, right? Planting churches, evangelism, all that stuff. But the amazing thing is, and we'll see this today, Paul comes to the end of his life, and check this out, he has so invested his life in people that as he's about to depart a city, they are weeping. They can't let him go. I mean, it's, it's one of those, like, it's, it's an ugly cry. You know what I'm talking about? Like an ugly cry. You got snot coming out. It's an ugly cry because he is so invested in his life in the group of people that as he's about to leave and they're going, we might not see you again. There's this powerful, emotional, moving scene. And you could, I, you know, surmise that Paul did his ministry certain ways. But one thing that's clear as we come to the book of Acts is this guy invested his life in people. And as a result... People invested in him. For some of us this morning, really the challenge is moving from seeing people as a commodity. I mean, good God, consumerism. We see people as a commodity to use and to discard when we're done. Do you see people as a, as, 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 as a commodity or do you see people as gifts to steward? Are you driven by selfish ambition or by unconditional love? Let me ask one last time before we move on. Are you investing in the lives of people around you? Are you walking alone because you want to get there fast? Or are you walking together because you want to go far? Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We're in our study of the book of Acts, and we come to, uh, toward, toward the letter end of this book. And when we come to Acts 20, Paul has planted all the churches he's ever going to plant. He is actually getting prepared to go to Jerusalem and then eventually to make his way to Rome. And as we come to Acts chapter 20, like I said, we find this incredibly moving scene. We're going to spend this Sunday and a couple Sundays on Acts 20, and you'll see why. Acts 20, chapter, chapter 20, verse 1. When the uproar had ended, and if you were here last week, you know why there was an uproar. I don't have time, so we'll just move on. Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. So check this out. So here's what's going on. Paul's planted all the churches he's going to plant, and he is sort of, sort of looking at the, at the latter end of his life. And here's what he decides to do. He says, I've planted churches all over Asia Minor, all over Europe, all over uh, 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 Macedonia. And he says, what I want to do is I want to go and I want 
want to, I want to go and encourage these churches. And, and that's going to be a big theme in this, in this chapter we're going to talk about today. He wants to encourage these churches. And so he decides that he's going to go back to Macedonia. He's going to make sort of his rounds and encourage these churches. Okay. And, and, and the wording in verse two uh, says that he spent substantial time in Macedonia. Some scholars think he spent as up to two years. So t- two years he's going around encouraging, spending time with investing in the lives of these churches and these people. Okay. By the way, also scholars believe that it was during this time that he wrote book of second Corinthians and the book of Romans. Okay. So he's getting work done as well. So check this out. Let's go verse, uh, verse three, where you say three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. So here's what's going on. So he plans to go to Macedonia, encourage these churches. And then he wants to stay, spend some time in Corinth, and then he wants to go back to Jerusalem, sail across, go to Jerusalem, and then eventually Rome. But once again, his life is disrupted. Once again, his wife is delayed. Once again, stuff comes into his life where he's going, not again. As he's getting ready to sail to Jerusalem from Syria, he finds out that there's some people on the ship who want to kill him. That's a good reason for, I guess, your plans to be, you know, disrupted a little bit. So he decides, okay, I'm going to go all the way back up to Macedonia, go all the way across the sea to Troas, which is in Asia Minor, and then make his way down. We keep going. Verse 4. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea. A bunch of guys. Verse 6. But we, Luke is with them, okay? We, eyewitness account. Okay, Luke is traveling with them. Sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Okay, now, at first sight, it seems like he was preaching the whole time. He wasn't. The words 7-9, where it says he talked to them, is the Greek word dialegomai, from which you get the English word dialogue. So he's talking. It's like a Bible study, give and take, questions. Okay? So he's conversing with them. Verse 8. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man. And the word young man in Greek is a general term for somebody between ages of 10 and 15. Okay? Young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on and on and on. It's funny, you know, Luke wrote this book, right? I think they got along, right? But I don't know, maybe he had a bad day that day, right? Maybe Paul got on his nerves. He goes, you know what? I'm just going to make sure that they all know you talked on. Who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. So here's what's going on, okay? Luke is very detailed. So it's midnight. Again, first day of the week, that means people have worked all day, okay? Eight, ten hours. Paul was in Troas just for a few days, and he said, and, and he wants to maximize that time with these people that he's brought to Christ, so on and so forth. So they're meeting at late at night. It's a tight room. They're oil lamps, which means it's stuffy, it's smoky, it's hot. Okay? And I don't know. You know, there's some parts where it seems like Paul was a really good speaker, and then there are other parts where he says to the Greeks, I didn't come with eloquence. So maybe he wasn't, I don't know. Scholars are up for the bit. But anyway, he's talking on, it's a stuffy room, and this kid, poor kid, is tired. He's sleepy. He didn't want to offend Paul, right? 
I mean, you know, you know, like some of you guys that sit like in row two, you know, like, you know, he's going, I don't want to bother him. That's right. I don't want to throw him off. So he finds a window. He opens it to get some cool air, right? So he's sitting by the window. And what happens? He falls asleep and he falls three stories. He dies. By the way, I was going to preach a sermon that says, if you fall asleep in church, you'll die. But I didn't think I was going to go. I was going to go. Well, you know, some of us that came from these fundamental legalistic churches, like, you know, I don't want to go there. Okay. We are gospel believing. We're not religious people. Okay. Verse 10. So Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. He says, don't be alarmed. He said, he's alive. Now, there's some scholars who want to, who don't want to believe that miraculous things like raising the dead were possible. So they read this text and they go, he didn't, he didn't die. He was just asleep or he was, you know, unconscious so on and so forth. Uh, to which I say, remember what Luke's profession was? The guy that wrote this book? He was a, he was a doctor. Okay. Last time I checked, doctors are fairly good about telling whether you're dead. Okay. Or you're just unconscious, okay? So this is Luke saying, no, he died. He really, really died. He fell three stories for crying out loud. He's dead. And what does Paul do? Paul, by the power of God, brings him back to life. Verse 11. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. Verse 12. The people took the young man home and were greatly comforted. Verse 13. So we went on out uh, to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. That's about a 20-mile walk from Troas to Assos, okay? And I'll tell you why that's significant in a little bit later. Verse 14. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived in Chios. By the way, in case you're going, where is this place? This is all along the west coast of Asia Minor, okay? So he's literally hitting the west coast of Asia Minor. Okay. There it is. Thank you, Nate. Okay. I said, put the map up this week. And he goes, it was there last week. You never refer to it. Okay. So there it is. Okay. West coast. You see the West coast of Asia Minor. That's where Paul's going. So he's literally boom, 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 just hitting these cities. Okay. So next day he says, so from there and arrived in Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem if possible by the end, the end the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the leaders of the church and verse 18, he said, we're going to come back to this next week. We're going to talk about his long speech or farewell to the Ephesians or the leaders in Ephesus. But today, here's what I want you to see. Jump all the way to verse 36 where it says, after he finished the speech, check this out. Check this out. I don't know what you think about Paul. I don't know how you envision him, but check this out. When he has said this, his farewell, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him, as they kissed him. It's short and succinct, but it's such a moving scene. These are men and women. He has invested his life in, and as he's about to leave them, they come around him, and it's ugly cry, weeping, they're kissing. It's almost like they don't want him to go. They're holding on to him and saying, just a little longer, Paul, just a little longer. Do you have people like that in your life? Do you have people that you've so invested in that if you were to leave Chicago, we have people that leave Chicago all the time from our church. If you were to leave Chicago, do you have people that you're so invested in that this moving scene where there are men and women coming around just saying, just a little longer.
This chapter is about how Paul leaves Ephesus, where he's lived for approximately three years. And actually, the big theme of this chapter, you guys, is encouragement. Everybody say encouragement. Okay, do it encouragingly. Say encouragement. Okay, encouragement. Three times, the very Greek word for encouragement appears in verse 1, verse 2, verse 12. Okay, verse 1, 2, and 12. Parakaleo, to encourage, appears three times. And then verses 18 to 35 essentially is the encouraging words that Paul spoke. The main theme is encouragement. And that's actually where I want to spend the bulk of my time. But before I do that, give me like five minutes to talk a little bit about, a little bit about this other powerful scene here, okay? And it's kind of a review from where we were at the beginning of the year. So I'm just going to, five minutes and then we'll move on, okay? There's also an enormously, enormously important principle found in this chapter. Remember, for three years, Paul makes Ephesus the base for his evangelistic church planting ministry okay, in Asia Minor. But we see in the book of Acts, Paul didn't intend on staying there. He eventually wants to, as I said before, go to Jerusalem. Chapter 19, verse 21, and also in chapter 16, we're told by Luke that Paul planned to return to Jerusalem in time for the Passover and then eventually go to Rome. Okay? But as we come to chapter 20, we find out, as I pointed out earlier, his plans get delayed again. His plans get disrupted again. He's made all these plans. He wants to go back home, essentially. Okay? He wants to have Passover. He wants to be there. But his plans get disrupted again. And again, the reason why they get disrupted, he finds out there's a plot to take his life from the Jews. Again, his own countrymen, his own people. So his plans get disrupted. And instead of sitting there, what does Paul do? He says, okay. He takes his way, or he makes his way, I should say, back through Macedonia, across the GNC to Troas, and all the way down, as we saw. And then eventually he'll make his way to Jerusalem. And the principle that I want to ask is, for a minute, a question. Does anybody, can anybody here relate to uh, what it's like to be frustrated because you make plans and they get disrupted? Say amen if you do. Can anybody here understand or empathize with somebody whose plans get delayed because you've made certain plans, but then they don't quite work out the way you do, completely beyond your control? Anybody relate? Okay. Some of you are like, okay, that's, I can relate to that. Now, at the beginning of the year, we talked two weeks. We did a sermon series on a sermon series called Life Interrupted. Remember that? What do we say then? We said the interruptions in life are inevitable. They will come. They will come. Interruptions in life will be inevitable. They will come sometimes because of decisions that we make, but also sometimes because of decisions that other people make. Sometimes God flat out intervenes in our lives and disrupting nicely organized plans we had to go there, to do that, to be with him. And when these interruptions happen, we ask two wrong questions. Review. Do you remember what the questions we ask are? Why and how long? When interruptions and delays come... I have nicely organized plans. We're going to do there, go that. I've got my life all mapped out. It's in my planner. When disruptions and delays come, we are almost always asking, God, why? Why is this happening to me? Like, they don't ever happen to anybody else. And how long? I want to get this over with. I've got things that I want to accomplish. I've got things I want to accomplish for you. So let's get going. Why and how long? And we said those are the wrong questions to ask. Those are the wrong questions to ask. The right questions to ask are the following, right? First and foremost. Again, I'll review to you guys. God, what do you want to do in me in the middle of this interruption? God, what do you want to do in me in the middle of this interruption? Ask that question. Delay interruptions beyond our plans. People want to take my life on a ship. I'm going to go the other way. God, what do you want to do in me? Ask that question. And here's what God might say. God might say, okay, well, why are you worried? I'm worried, God, about this delay. I'm worried about this disruption. Let's start there. Why are you so worried? I know you give lip service to the fact that you trust me. 
and that I'm God and I'm in control. But the fact that you're worried, anxious, frustrated, maybe gives real clues to who it is that you trust, who it is that you depend on. So let's start there. Let's keep going. Why are you so worried? Why are you so worried about that thing, that job, that thing not working out? Is it because, is it because that thing that you value more than God, that is more important than God, that is more important than your relationship with me is being threatened? That that's maybe the real God and idol in your life. That's why you're so worried and anxious and afraid. Because you're afraid of losing it. And losing it means losing your significance, losing your identity, losing your worth. Why are you so worried? God, what do you want to do in me? Second question. Let's keep going. God, what do you want to do? What, who, do you want to, who do you want me to meet in the middle of interruption, uh, uh, this interruption? Is there somebody that you, wanna, you want me to connect with that I might not be able to connect with? It's amazing how often when interruptions and delays come. Come on, some of you guys know this. God puts our paths with people that we would have never met. A divine intersection of lives. And we look back years later and go, if God hadn't done that there, I would have never met you. And I wouldn't be where I am today. So ask that question. God, who do you want me to meet? Are there people that you want me to meet that I'm not even aware of? Can I just say this? God closes doors. God opens doors. Some of us stare so long at a closed door that we miss the door that's opening. Some of y'all are sitting there going, God, and it's been weeks, months. It's closing. It's closed. God's going, got all kinds of open doors for you, but you are completely missing it because you are staring at that door. And it was shut. Revelation 3, 7. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Third question. God, is there something you want me to do in the middle of this interruption? God, is there something you want me to do? And the fourth question is, God, how can you be glorified in the midst of this interruption, right? God, how will you cause this? How will you use this to cause somebody to know who you are? How will you use this to advance your name? How will you use this to glorify yourself, God, to show your grace to your mercy? And we come to God and say, God, I might not know everything, but I know this. God, you caused this. You used this. You used these interruptions and delays. It's not because of evil purposes of man. It's not because of my mistakes even. It's not because of all these things. But ultimately, God, somehow these delays and interruptions are about you being able to do your work in my life and in the lives of others in advancing your kingdom that you otherwise could not do. He asked the question, did God do that to Paul? Listen, look at this story. Look at the story of how this relates to Paul. These dangers were distressing and probably frustrating for Paul as his plans and schedules are continually disrupted. But from our perspective, 2,000 years later, here's at least minimally what we know on what God did to use his interruption and delays. First of all, it meant that more churches received more encouragement from Paul than they would have ever had. Think about it. All the churches that he had planted, if he had come straight from Greece to Jerusalem, would have never had that opportunity once again to have Paul spend time with them and offer the encouragement and the words that Paul offered. The farewell to Ephesians at the end of this chapter 20 would have never been recorded had Paul and his plans not been interrupted. Without even Paul knowing it, God in his sovereignty knew what these churches needed, what these people needed, and what they needed was far more encouragement from Paul than he had envisioned. Secondly, check this out. 
The miraculous healing of Eutychus would never have occurred if Paul had not returned through Macedonia. Although we're not told exactly what the ramifications were of the miracle throughout the book of Acts, when God works supernaturally, combined with the preaching of the word, revival renewal broke out in cities. Who knows what happened in Troas as a result of this miraculous work of God? Here's a third. How many of you guys have been blessed by the book of Romans? The book of Romans might never have been written had Paul not made this journey. Scholars also say 2 Corinthians was also written about this journey. Do you think Paul knew from his perspective 2,000 years later? People are going to be blessed by the book of Romans. And that book, by the way, will be written because my delays. No, he didn't know that. Do you think he would have known? No, he doesn't have that perspective. All he did, though, was remain faithful and followed God. He remained faithful and followed God. And as a result... We are still talking about his life, his writings, his inspiration. Principle. Here's the principle. Sometimes it is going to be hard for you to see how God is at work in the midst of the interruptions and delays. And for many of us, it will seem like it's totally the opposite of what we would do if we were God. Thank goodness for that, eh? But in the whole time, in God's divine sovereign work, God is at work orchestrating events to advance his kingdom purposes and to do a work in us and in our hearts and in our lives that otherwise could not do. So here's the principle, okay? Sum it up, know and not know what God is doing. Don't look at your circumstances, the interruptions, the delays, the hardships, and say God cannot be at work. God is at work. In the midst of it. Don't look at just your circumstances, delays, your plans being a saint. God, how can you possibly be in this? God is in it. Know and not know what God is doing. Say, how can I trust him? How can you trust him? Because of the cross. Because of what he did for me. Because of what he bled for me. Because of what he gave for me. I don't know who you are. I don't need to know who you are. You're saying interruptions and delays. Is God at work in my life? I could tell you without a shadow of a doubt, God is at work in your life. Well, you tell my boss that. Trust me. Your boss cannot interrupt God's plans for your life. Cancer can't. Divorce can't. Your failures, your mistakes can't. None of those things can disrupt God from doing the work that he wants to do in your life. Nothing. A girl telling you that you don't matter to her anymore cannot stop God from working in your life. As I like to say to you guys over and over again, there's no plan B in God's plan for your life. He is at work. Amen. Is this good news to anybody? Oh, for crying out loud. How many of you are going through this right now? Clap. How many of you are going through right now? Right now, where are you going? Interruptions, delays, hello? Are you at that? No, no, no. Go back and read Acts 20 and meditate on it this week and just go, God, you did that, really? A bunch of people wanted to kill me, but you somehow used those delays and interventions and interruptions. Okay, that's a little more than five-minute review. Okay, oh, yes, keep going. The, the entire chapter, say it with me, is focused on what? 
encouragement. Encouragement is a key theme of this chapter. Okay? And here's what we know. Here's what we know, the background of this text, and we're going to delve a little bit into it. Not only did Paul plant churches and lead people to Christ, but he also made sure that these new churches and these new Christians were encouraged. They were exhorted. They were given kind of the, 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 the discipleship that said, come on, you can keep going. Press on. You can make it. Paul wasn't just this evangelist, teacher, prophet, etc., doing his thing. But this guy actually takes time to visit these young Christians and young churches to make sure that there's health, there's nurture. And you know what I think he learned it from? You know what I think he learned it from? He learned it from one of his old friends. You remember a guy named Barnabas? Do you remember? Let's go back to meet Barnabas one more time. Acts chapter 11. Okay, we're going to pull our flesh up there. Acts chapter 11. We, we, we spent a little bit of time. Acts chapter 11, remember, is when revival breaks out in Antioch. First time the gospel goes beyond Jerusalem in a multicultural, multi-ethnic city. The gospel breaks out. And so the leaders in Jerusalem who are seeing this movement go beyond their borders are saying, somebody's got to go check this out and make sure that everything's okay. So here's what happens. Verse 2. So news of this, that is work of God in Antioch, reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who, remember, eventually would be Paul. And when he found Paul, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, or Paul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Barnabas is sent to these young Christians and young church to encourage them, to, to exhort them. And, and, and here's what we see in verse 23. He was sent to encourage them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Some of you are sitting there going, is this really important? Okay, let me just ask you this way. How many of you, when you first initially became a Christian, went through a really, really hard time? One person? Let me ask again. How many of you, right after you became a Christian, it wasn't like peace, everlasting peace. How many of you, when you first became a Christian, it was like everything in life is working out great. How many of you, when you first became a Christian, there's no other word to describe it. It was like a battle, a war. All of us. It's all of us. I don't know a single Christian who says, I became a Christian and afterwards my life worked out great. My angry parents became nice parents. My annoying co-workers, all of a sudden, because, no, when we become a Christian, the Bible says three enemies at war within with our old flesh. When you first become a Christian, are you kidding me? Everything within you says, go back to your old life. When you first become a Christian, battle within to our flesh. When you become a Christian, Bible also says there's enemy, Satan, devil, who rolls around like a pri- roll, who, who, who prowls around like a roaring lion. English is my second language. I don't need to remind you of that one more time. Be gracious. This is why I need to preach on encouragement today. Our church stinks at it. Okay, anyway. So, there's battle without. And then the values, the world systems, the Bible says. The priorities of the world. When you first become a Christian, it is a battle. It is a war. Some of you are going through that right now. Just a quick word. Just a quick word. Just a quick word. Just a quick word. For those of you that are going, man, my life is battle, it's war with my own self, with this stuff that I'm wrestling through, trying to, trying to live my life for Christ. It is a battle. It is a war, man. What's wrong with me? Let me tell you something. There's nothing wrong with you. It's what's right about you. Do you know why? 
Because the Bible says you could tell someone who's spiritually alive just as much as with their inner peace as the battle that they're engaging. It's a sign that you're alive. Example I give, I give you this all the time. My wife is pregnant with our third child. In August, we're going to give birth to our third son. Have you ever been in a delivery room? Have you ever seen what it's like when a life comes out? Have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen it? Of course you haven't seen it. It's traumatic. When a baby is born, when a baby is born, when there's life in that, you know what happens when a baby is born? The baby doesn't come out and go, hmm. When a baby is born, that baby screams and yells. You know why? Because they're breathing for life. That's a picture of the spiritual life. If you're sitting there going, it's battle, man. It's constant battle. That means you're alive. So these young Christians, men and women from Jerusalem are like, we got to go encourage them. We got to go encourage them. They're probably looking at each other going, you remember what it was like for us? Send Barney. Send Barney. Barney got to go. So Barney goes. <laughs> but here's the thing I want you to notice. Here's the thing I want you to notice. Look at verse 24. It says, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. This is huge. This is so important for me. Listen, Barnabas, as far as we know, did not do direct evangelism. He did not do direct preaching. He didn't lead mass crusades. What Barnabas did was he discipled, encouraged, exhorted, press on, keep going, persevere, the Christians. And as a result, the Bible says, a revival broke out. How does that work? Here's how it works. As a result of Barnabas' encouragement, as a result of Barnabas' ministry, of building up, exhorting, press on, persevere, the Christians, they themselves became, became strengthened And the joy within their hearts and the vitality of their walk with Jesus became the engine for their witness. Did you get that? This church right here cannot be what God calls us to be, to be living, missional, vital kingdom, if there isn't constant ministry of encouragement for the Christians who follow Jesus. It's a spurring one another on towards, the Bible says, good deeds that enables us to walk through these doors and be the church without walls. If you're expecting to come on a Sunday morning and get an inspirational jolt and walk out of here and live your Christian life, you are sadly mistaken, my friend. It's the community of people around you who are doing life with you and saying, keep going, press on, don't give up. It is the extent to which you have that community around you that you can fulfill the mission of God in your life. You don't have that. I don't care how strong you think you are. You're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. The other striking thing about encouraging thing is this. Who does Barnabas go and get? Who does Barnabas go and get? He gets who? He gets Paul. Do you know why that's encouraging to me? Right now, right now, at this point in Acts, Paul, okay? Paul, Saul, is looked upon as a pariah. He's looked upon by his fellow Jews and going, that guy, oh, no, no, no. We know what he's done, okay? He has dragged our uncles. He has dragged our nieces. He has dragged our mothers and fathers, and he has persecuted them. That guy, a Christian, I don't think so. There's one guy, though, one guy, one guy who goes to leaders in Jerusalem, looks them in the eyes and goes, listen, you guys trust me? We trust you. We trust you. And he says, I believe in him. Do you know what the word encourage comes from? Combination of two words, in, and, which means in, and courage. Do you know what encouraging somebody is? 
It's instilling courage in them. That's what encouraging it is. It's instilling courage. It's literally saying to somebody with your life and words, I believe in you. Let's just stop it. I mean, this is like, you know, this is like common sense, right? So let me just ask you guys. How many of you guys had parents who never, ever uttered those words via action or words to you? Some of you are honest enough, just raising your hands right now. You're going, my parents, I grew up, I never for a second, Peter, ever believed that they believed in me. Never. And your whole life has been this journey of trying to earn either their approval or somebody else's to say, somebody needs to believe in me. Can I just say this? This church would not be possible if it had been for a guy named Peter. Not me. He'll go, he's arrogant. <laughs> yeah, I struggle with pride, but I'm not that arrogant, okay, or foolish. 1998, I'm 28 years old, Korean-American guy, grew up in church, ministry all my life in Korean churches. God gives me a vision to plant this, 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 this. And I thought, no, God, are you kidding me? Me? Are you serious? See, some of you guys, you have the liability of being gifted. I wasn't one of those, right? You have the liability of being gifted. You're like, I don't need anybody. I believe in myself. I wasn't one of those. Deeply, deeply insecure. Still am today. I'm going, God, there's no way I'm going to do that. Walked into my, uh, my, my Peter Chow, he's a professor at Trinity. Walked into his office. He's a Korean guy. He's like seven, eight years older than me. Okay. I call him Yoda. He's one, he's one of these very wise, you know, he's not like me. He doesn't talk a lot, but when he does talk, it's like, whoa, you know. So Peter, can I talk to you? He said, sure, come on in. I talked for 30 minutes, 30 minutes. I just poured out my heart for this thing, this envisioning. Just poured out my heart. And he sat there just looking. He didn't say a word, just nodded. Just nodded. And I'm trying to read his, you know, I'm going, you know, trying to draw some response. Nothing, just, just kind of nodded, nodded. At the end of 30 minutes, I said, what do you think? And he looks at me and he says, these are his words. I believe you can do this. That's literally, no exaggeration, all it took for me to walk out of that office and say, he believes in me. He thinks I can do this. And here you are today. See, I'm not going to be overly spiritual. I could sit here and go, God told me and I heard his voice. And when I heard his voice, I said, yes, Lord, please, please, please. Okay. I overly spiritualize it. I am humble enough to say to you today, did I hear from God? Absolutely. I'm humble enough to say to you today, it took a man that I respected looking at me in the eyes and going, I believe in you. You know what he did? He instilled courage in courage. How many of you today are cowards? Yeah. And honest, too, I could tell. You know, like 10 of you going, I'm a coward. 99.9% of us in here, this room, are cowards in one form or another. It's not because you think you're screwed up. It's the fallout from Garden of Eden. It's the whole covering up our nakedness. We're all born cowards. It's in the nature of sin. And our entire lives do, guys, I am man, you know. So, so like athletic exploits, you know, we sleep with a lot of women. I'm not a coward. You're a coward, man. Women, afraid to death. 
Here's the thing. We could spiritualize and go, God will heal us. Or we could look at scripture, be biblical and say, how about if we instill courage in one another? Hmm? Barnabas is there for Paul. Barnabas is there for Paul. It's so powerful for me. Okay, just real quick, okay, because I need, I, I, need, I need to sort of wrap this up. Some of you guys actually have the spiritual gift of encouragement. Did you know that? Some of you guys have a spiritual gift. God has actually given you. Let me show you scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, use it in proportion to his faith. If serving, let him serve. If teaching, let him teach. If encouraging, let him encourage. Some of you guys have a spiritual gift. How many of you think you have this? This is the problem with our church. <laughs> There's like three people who are like, I think it's my gift. It is. It, re- no, no, no. it really is an issue. Not just our church, every church. Suddenly you have this gift. You don't even know it. Your friends know you do, but you don't know it. Here, let me, let me show you. Here's the definition of spiritual gift of encouragement, okay? The gift of encouragement, of gift of exhortation, is the divine ability to motivate, to strengthen, and to control others so that they may mature in their walk with Jesus. You have this gift if, check this out, you have unusual sensitivity for and attracted to those who are discouraged and struggling. How many can say that? Yeah, I kind of have to, yeah. See, I, I don't have that, <laughs> okay? <laughs> People that are discouraged and struggling, I want to go, get yourself together, you know? That wasn't very encouraging. No, but get yourself together, okay? That's not me. Some of you guys, okay? How many of you guys? People tend to pursue you for counseling because you have a level of patience and optimism. Yeah, 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 some of you do, right? How many of you guys would rather have one-on-ones and one-on-twos in small groups than stand up in front of 500 people and speak? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So here's some more diagnostic questions. You ready? Do people seek you out for advice and encouragement? Do you enjoy walking with someone through difficulties? Are you attracted to those people who are hurting and needy? Are you patient with people? Would you rather speak personally with someone about their problems rather than send them to someone else for help? Like, Pastor Peter, right? Do you find it easy to express joy, high degree of optimism in the presence of those who are suffering? Let me just say one word and then we're going to move on. Some of you guys have the spiritual gift. I'm telling you, divine gift, gift ability. It's in you by God. You need to use it. You need to use it. Are you using it? Are you using it? But here's what I want to end with today, okay? Because if all set around going, I don't have the spiritual gift of encouragement, so let someone else do it. That's like me going, I don't have the gift of serving, so I'm not going to do anything. That's like someone saying, I don't have the gift of love, so I'm not. It, it, it's, it's nonsense. The Bible calls every single one of us to be encouragers. Here's how Paul did it. Here's how we need to do it. Three things. Number one, Paul encouraged people, if you're taking notes, through his presence. Through his presence. What do I mean? Paul spent time with people. He spent time with them. I'm speaking to those of you that are not naturally spiritually gifted, okay? I'm speaking to you. This is how we go about doing it. Number one, Paul encouraged people through his presence. He spent time with people. Verse 18 of chapter 20 is fascinating to me. It says, when they arrived, okay, Paul and his entourage, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. He says, you know how I spent the whole, he spent time with, look, we see a glimpse of this in Troas. What does he do in Troas? He doesn't come into Troas and go, I am Apostle Paul. Somebody set up a two-day conference and I will preach the word. It will bring masses to Christ. What does he do? He goes, no, bypass that. Uh, is uh, someone's house open? Why? I want to just hang out. You want to do what? You're Apostle Paul. I know. What hang, hang, hang out. Oh, yeah. And invite your family and friends. Let's hang out. 
How many of you guys know what it's like when a friend comes into town and they're really bad friends and they go, hey man, I'm coming to town Friday. When are you leaving? Saturday. Oh, I haven't seen you in ages. Okay, well, I'll pick you up. How many of you guys know this? And what do you do? That friend comes to town, you have one day. What do you do? You spend the whole night with them, right? Talking to the wee hours of the night, right? I do this all the time because I have friends that are in ministry and I hate it. I'm coming to town, Chicago, man, 8 o'clock in the morning. 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, when are you leaving? Ah, 7 in the morning. 7 in the morning. And stay up all night. This was normal for Paul. He spends time with people, hanging out, talking to the wee hours of the night. Talking to the wee hours of the night. But if you think about it, when you think about encouragement and being present, isn't this how friendships are forged? Isn't this how trust is built? It's a group of people that you're spending time with. It's countless conversation over meals, over coffee, just doing life with them. That a relational trust is built where you identify with them, where you can empathize with them. And the kind of friendship that's formed where sometimes, and check this out, this is really cool. You spend so much time together that sometimes you don't even need to talk. Isn't that great? When you have friends, you just sit and go, you have to, yeah, 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 all the time you just sit there. How many of you guys have ever been on a drive with a good friend and you just drive for an hour? You don't even have to talk. He said, they go, man, this is so good. How many of you guys know what that's like? That doesn't happen unless you're willing to, check this out, linger. Paul loved lingering. I think he loved lingering. You know what our greatest enemy is? Busyness. So let me ask you this. Are you willing to be inconvenienced? in order to be present in people's lives? Are you willing to be inconvenienced? Because you know what? If you hold on to your convenience, you go, I don't want my schedule. Here's how I, here's how I know a good friend is a true friend. We don't have to plan it out two, three weeks in advance. Spontaneity. Anytime. Anytime. Do you have friends like that? Or is it... Open your calendar. Okay, well, three weeks from now. Okay, well, 7.30 to 8.30. I got this, but 8.30 to 9. That's the life we live. How the heck do we build the kinds of friendships in which we just linger? Can't be an encourager with that many times. Secondly, Paul made himself available to the people. He says, you know how I lived. Check this out. He says, you know how. He's saying, my life was an open book. You guys saw it. You came, you went, my shop, my home. You know how I lived. Can I ask you something? How many people can say that about you? How many people can you look at your life and go, you know how I live. My life's an open book. It's unbelievable to me in a church that we value privacy over community. Privacy is a greater value. Privacy, privacy. Community, yeah. Privacy, community, privacy. Wow, you guys. I think this is what contributed to Paul being so effective. He spent a ton of time with people. He opened his life to them. And yes, when he did that, he was vulnerable to being hurt. And he was hurt, Paul. Three times in this passage, we find references to Paul. Tears or weeping, verse 19, verse 31 and 37. And I know that for us in our generation, that is absolutely committed to not feeling any kind of pain that this kind of vulnerability openness availability is hard real quick do you remember what c.s lewis said i tell you guys all the time 
He says, if you don't ever want your heart to be broken, if you don't ever want your heart hurt, because some of us are going, that kind of friendship, people, that Peter, that you're talking about, I don't want that because, you know, after all, I might get hurt. C.S. Lewis says, if you don't ever want your heart broken, then take it and put it in a little casket of selfishness and close it. And that casket, your heart will never be broken. You'll never get your feelings hurt. You'll never get disappointed. You'll never get let down. But it's in that casket, your heart will become unbreakable irredeemable. There's no in-between. Either we love radically and risk getting hurt, or we put our hearts in a casket of selfishness. We never, ever have our hearts broken or hurt, but our hearts will become unbreakable. So if you're that careful about your time, about your resources, if you're that careful about, you know, you know, I really had to call her up. But man, every time I call her up, she goes on and on and on and on and on. I just don't want that. And I really had to reach out to him. But if I reach out to him, I don't know. You know, he might let me down because he did that like two, three other times before. So what if I reach out to them and they reject me and they're not love radically, you'll risk getting hurt. Keep your casting a little selfishness. It'll become unbreakable. There's no alternative. Paul, you know how I lived. You know how I lived. Secondly, Paul encouraged people through his words. He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people. It says in verse 2, verse 7 and 9, of course, we have the marathon talking session in Troas. And verses 18 to 35 gives a sample of the message of encouragement. And, you know, I think it's Paul's close relationship with the people because he just spent time with them that make, helped make his words that much more powerful. He knew the people that he spoke to. So, of course, they're going to come way more powerful. You know, the thing that I'm learning, you guys, every day, every day, every week, we're all in need of healing. It's amazing because, and I get, it's the people that look the most put together on the outside that walk into my office and they're just broken. It's the people that walk around here, the most put together, the most self-assured sometimes that are most hurting. You have no idea who's in need of healing words. There's a person sitting in front of you who desperately needs some healing words today. You have no idea. There's a person sitting behind you. That person at the restaurant line, that person that at the grocery store, that your waitress that comes by and she looks a little, you know, and you just, you just want to go, what kind of service? She may be deeply hurt. We're all in need of healing. And we so underestimate the power of healing words that come, that do life transmit work in our hearts. I grew up in a family where my parents never said, I love you. Anybody relate to that? Oh, I knew they loved me. You know, good Korean parents. We serve. We work for you. We work at the dry cleaners. So come work on Saturdays. You know, you got to, you know. So it was like my mom, she cooked. And I, I, I get it. I get it. But man, I tell you what, growing up in this family, there's this thing, you know, just, uh, and that's why I, I stink at it, you know. But you know what? Every single day, Sophie and Parker, it's kind of gross, actually. Before they go, I grab them. I go, Parker, I love you, son. I love you. I love you. <laughs> I love, I can't get enough. I can't, I can't do enough of it. I can't do enough of it. Power of healing words. Have somebody say, I believe. 
I mean, it's so silly sometimes, you know. I go out, Sophie, she started bicycling. She started doing like two, three times. I go, yay, Sophie, you could actually pedal. <laughs> People are probably watching going, of course she could pedal. She's three years old. You know, I joke about this, but man, I'm just feeling this heavy emotion right now because there's some of you sitting out there and it's Mother's Day and this is so hitting close to home because you're sitting there going, nobody's ever spoken words to me. Brought about healing. Who can you do that to today? Who can you do that to And third, 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 okay? Paul encouraged him through his actions. So his presence, his words, the great encouragement of the people, okay, in verse 2, of course, was tied to his raising up Eutychus, okay? He healed. Paul also visits house to house, it says, verse 20, which can be regarded as act of kindness. And, of course, the, 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 the speech that we'll look at, he says, I serve the Lord. I serve all of you with humility and with tears. You know, that's one of the most amazing things about our church, guys, is that every week I hear about, check this out, every week I hear stories like this. Every week I get an email from somebody that's saying, Peter, I just want you to know how encouraging your church is to me. I've been unemployed and I couldn't pay rent. Somebody paid my rent. I'm like, what? Somebody emailed me just the other, other week and said, I found two bags of groceries. I don't know if people even knew that and had money to buy groceries. We have people that drive somebody actually to get chemotherapy because they don't want to go by themselves. And so their friends are like, oh, you're not, you're not, you're not doing that by yourself. I'm going to go with you. It's a church that buys a bicycle for a young man in our church who got his bicycle stolen. In church, by the way. <laughs> it's the only route, mode of transportation. Every, every week, uh, parents with newborns, unemployed, the guy was for a while. Not only did our church deliver meals to them, but for like a month, they also bought groceries, diapers, toys. You know, as I thought about, as I thought about how I want to end this sermon today, um, a story in the life of Jesus came up. And who, who was playing the keys today? Was it Uni? Uni, come on up. Okay. And I, I need you guys just to pay attention just for a few more minutes, okay? Because, because, because here's how I want to end. Like, I, I want you to know, I want you to know that what we're talking about today is not, you know, it's not one of these, hey, I want to be an encourager today. So let's spend time together, you know? Hey, hey, uh, I think you're cool, you know, words. Yeah. No, no, what I'm really asking is what I started this day with. In other words, it's not just kind of a once a while, once a week. No, the question that I started today was with this, are there people whose lives you're investing in? Are there people whose lives you're investing in? That's essentially what I want you to leave here today with. So when we talk about being a church of encouragement, it's not just about, you know, in my Bible study once a week, I say, no, it's about thinking to yourself and going, are there people whose lives I'm investing in? And so I want to leave you with this story in the life of Jesus. It's found, actually, you don't have to turn your Bibles. If you want to be really spiritual, you can, but you can just look up on the screen, okay? I brought my Bible today. Well, good for you. I just encourage you. Did you see that? Did you see that? You missed it? Oh, man. I just encouraged you today. Oh, man. There's not going to be another one coming for like a month. Oh, yeah. Listen, listen. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Listen, listen. Chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. 
So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached a word to them. Some men came bringing him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat and paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, since your sins are forgiven. Do you know what I want to leave you with this? You know this story, right? You know the story. Jesus is in town. People want to get him to Jesus, this friend, right? They can't get to him because of the long line, so on and so forth. So these guys are outside the box thinkers. What do they do? They vandalize a home. They vandalize a home. And that's what it is. They dig a roof and they lower it. They lower it. Now, here's the thing. We know that the story is about the power of God. So if you're sitting there going, you're doing, you know, some, some real thing, weird thing with the scripture. Just, just give me a break and just, okay. The, the entire story is about Jesus being the son of God, who, whose only power, who has only power to forgive sins. We know that. That's the primary story. But there's an angle here that I want to leave you with. If I'm sitting there that day, if I'm sitting there that day, and I see this happening, roof being lowered, okay? And not only cutting the roof, but cutting in line. Thank you very much. I've been waiting all day. How many of you guys, if you're driving on the highway, there's like a mile line to the exit ramp, and you see a car in the Bay Revere just going like 70 miles per hour, passing right by you, some of you, you're that, right? You're that, you're that guy, right? When that happens, are you happy for him? No, that's what's going on. I'm sitting there. I'm being ticked. I'm like, I waited all day. You cut in line in front of me. But you know what Jesus does? He doesn't say, hey, hey, get back in line. He commends them. He says, that, that's pretty cool. And he saw their faith. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. He saw their faith. It doesn't make any sense. He saw their faith. It's like you putting in your ATM card putting in your ID and punching in $500 and then the guy next to you going, whoa, where's this money coming from? It doesn't make any sense. Forgiveness, it's me personal. I ask you for forgiveness and you forgive me. And yes, that's definitely a part of that. But I think part of the reason why we go, their faith is because we're reading this through a Western individual perspective. Hang in there with me. Maybe God doesn't measure our individual spirituality by looking at us isolated from the people in our lives. Maybe God measures our spirituality. Maybe God measures our spiritual health and spiritual dysfunction by the relationships and by the community and the people around us. Maybe. Maybe that's why when Jesus says he saw their committed faith, he saw these four guys and their love for their friend, he forgives the paralytic. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, God knows more about our faith by the people around us than what we think. Maybe the true sign of our spiritual health is who we have around us. So then that gets me to this question. Do you have friends that you refuse to leave behind? Here are these four guys who says... There are these dreams we're going to pursue. There are these ambitions we have. But you know what? It's an utter failure if you're not with us. So you know what? Even if I have to carry you, even if I have to drag you, you're coming with. Do you have friends that you leave behind? So then here's a million-dollar question. Turn it upside down. Who will carry you? Who will carry you? Who are the people that you have so invested in, that you have so poured out your life to, that you have so given of your time, energy, and resources that when you find yourself paralyzed emotionally perhaps or spiritually 
and you can't go to where you want to go. You can't do the things that you want to do. Who will carry you? Do you have four people, just four, four people in your life today if you found yourself paralyzed and saying, I can't go another step. I can't pick myself one more time. I can't fulfill those dreams without... Do you have four people in your life today if you were in that situation who would look at you in the eyes and go, I'll carry you. Come on. I got you. I got you. I got you. Do you have... Some of us can't even think of four people who even have that level of commitment to us. Who will carry you? See, that is encouragement. I'm going to encourage. No, no, no. It's actually about who will carry you. If truly success is measured by not how fast we go, but how far we go. If true success is measured not by whether we achieve success, but we have success achieve success together if true meaning in life is not about accumulation of wealth and success and ministry and money and bank, if true success is measured by the people that you love and the people that love you if true success will be measured so that at the end of this whole deal when you're about to go you have people that you have so invested in who say I will not let you down who will carry you do you have four people in your life who are that committed to you? Encouragement. Let's pray together. guys with twofold question today are there people in your life that you refuse to leave behind and in return who brother sister in Christ will carry you do you have four people in your life that you have so invested in He'll say, whatever it takes, however long, however far the journey, you will never, ever go it alone. What a beautiful picture, church of community of God and what God intended. So before the worship team leads us in this final response song that really celebrates more than anything else God's faithfulness to us, I want you to think for a moment about the people in your life. People in your life that matter the most to you.
And God, I thank you for those of us sitting here today who are fortunate enough to be able to say, God, I do have them. And man, I don't know what I'd do without them. What an encouragement they are to me and I to them. And we celebrate that today. And we don't want to minimize that. But God, I especially wanted to say, pray for those of us, men and women in this room today, for whom that question really is hard. For that question of who will carry me, that question is really hard because the reality is there are no people. And God, I just want to pray and ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would first and foremost open their eyes to see perhaps men and women around them who've been reaching out to them this whole time. That you would also enable their hearts to be softened if that's what's blocking them, to be able to maybe venture out once again and risk getting hurt, yeah, but knowing that the benefits and the rewards of that, God, far outweighs our fears and our anxieties. And frankly, for many of us who live very self-centered, isolated lives, where it's about me, myself, and I, that we would take this challenge to say, who are the men and women around me that I need to pour out my life for? And that we would begin there, an act of obedience and faith. Thank you, God. New Community Church family, as you leave this place, know that whether you are gifted, know that whether you are just entrusted with the gift or not, we are called to be men and women of encouragement, exhortation to the people in our lives. Spend your life this week investing in the lives of men and women that God has placed around you. And know that your labor in the world, your labor work in the Lord is not in vain. Think of the people in your life that you refuse to leave behind. For one day, they will carry you and they will refuse to leave you behind. Father, we thank you that you are our ultimate encourager. You are our ultimate, ultimate encourager. Saved by grace, redeemed by grace, and filled with your spirit. May we live out our lives this week for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. In the name of the Father, name of the Son, name of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Happy Mother's Day, moms. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next Sunday.